Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, it's found on page 846, and we'll look at verses 17 through 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is speaking of Jesus, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much that we could gather here this morning. Um, it is truly a delight to come and to worship you and, and to sing of your great love for your church. Lord, that as we stand here, we are just reminded that we deserve absolutely nothing from you. And yet you have poured out a love that is humbling. It's just overwhelming. Oh, God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and um, Lord, just compel us to go and to tell others about who Christ is. But Lord, also, Lord, that you would stir our love for you as well. Um, that, Father, that we could find our true delight in you and you alone. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I know that it's been a very busy weekend for everybody in one sense, and if nothing else, just because of all the weather and, and the storms that have come through. I know not everybody lives in Andover. More people don't than do. Uh, but still, I know that there was bad weather in the outlying areas. And I know that uh, for us, we do live in Andover, um, the, with the tornado going through, it's a very humbling sight. I grew up in a state where I saw where there were a lot of tornadoes. I've never seen a tornado though, 
only seeing the after effects, and, and that's quite something. But to actually see a tornado, it just sort of really humbles you, and especially as you see the devastation that it can do, and, and even the taking of life. You know, it really humbles you to think about, you know, not only this life that we live, but also what's after this life, you know, and how do I have a relationship with God? Now, as we come to our text today, that's sort of, uh, to some degree, what uh, is happening here. You know, imagine if you would this week or next week or the week after that, you know, maybe you have a coworker or a neighbor or someone, a uh, friend that you hook up with that lived in Andover and, and you know, they're like, you know, going through this experience with this tornado has is, is really made me wonder about my life. And, you know, I just wonder, what must I do to, to be a Christian? I know you're a Christian and I've watched your life and I just want to know how I become a Christian. What would you tell them? Well, this is sort of the, the scenario in one sense that Jesus is having this morning as we come to our passage. Jesus is getting ready to leave on a journey, and this young man runs up to him. I mean, runs up to him, and he comes and he bows before Jesus. And, and Luke, or excuse me, Luke, Mark records a little bit of, uh, about this man, but Matthew and Luke tell us actually a little bit more in their accounts. Matthew tells us that he actually is a very wealthy man, and Luke uh, tells us that he is a ruler. And oftentimes people think that that means that he's a ruler of the synagogue. And I think that very much could be the case. And so he would be very religious. I guess in today's terms, we'd say he was a churchgoer and a very religious man. But he obviously was distressed in his soul that not everything was right between him and God. And so he runs up to Jesus and we see in verse 17 and he says, good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. What must I do? We would say to have a relationship with God. Or to be made right with God. And I'm guessing that this man had had some kind of exposure to Christ. In his ministry. And was very impressed with Jesus. And so he comes to him. With this matter of his soul. And uh, as we look at his response uh, to Jesus. And even his question I guess before that. Even in the language that's used in the Greek, it sort of indicates that he expected Jesus to prescribe some great deed that he could do and that that would just make everything right between him and God. But Jesus doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, we sort of see in this interaction between this young man and Jesus, we get a picture of someone who outwardly believes in God and yet doesn't really know God. And he doesn't realize that he doesn't. And so Jesus explains to this man and to his disciples and those who were listening and even to us as we read this today, what is necessary for eternal life? Uh, because Jesus seeks to awaken him to the spiritual realities, you know, that, that a person may think that they know God. They may feel good about their eternal destiny, but in reality, they may be far away from God. And so... It's easy for people to be deceived in their relationship with God and think that they are followers of God when in reality they are not. And so I want us to, to consider this this morning. What is necessary for eternal life? What is necessary for a person? How do we know that you know, we would be people who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I want us to see several things today, four to be exact. First of all, we must acknowledge who God truly is. 
We must acknowledge who God truly is in verses 17 and 18. You see, the first thing, that's the first thing Jesus confronts this young man with is his perception of God. I mean, even with the young man's question, it sort of betrays the fact that he really was flawed in his understanding of who God is and God's way of salvation. Because, I mean, he asked in his question, basically, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Okay, what... What, what must I do to gain or to win eternal life? There's some kind of effort here that, that I need to do. So just tell me what that is so that I can have a relationship with God. Uh, he, this young man thought that how he lived his life would make him worthy to some extent to warrant eternal life. And I think that's what Ian Hamilton calls the piety of achievement. The piety of achievement. In other words, the, the young man really thought a lot more highly of himself than, than, he, than he should have. And so Jesus begins with God and who God is to really sort of help the man to see even his own heart and where he's coming from. So Jesus picks up on this young man's use of the word good here. And Jesus answers by saying, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. And, you know, as you look at the Old Testament and what it shows us about God, only God really is ultimately good. There is no one else in, in comparison to God that is good and perfect and righteous. Only he is good. Now, people can be called good, but only in comparison to other sinful people, right? So when one sinner compares himself with another sinner and says, well, I'm good. I'm better than this person. You know, you might look at my life and go, well, look at Pastor Rick. I'm definitely a good person. Or, you know, maybe I'll say that about somebody else. And so we can compare ourselves. But the reality is we are sinners comparing ourselves with sinners. But God is ultimately good uh, and righteous and perfect. And so when this man calls Jesus good teacher, it's, it's really important for us to understand this is sort of unprecedented. This isn't something that a person would typically call a rabbi. So by him calling Jesus good, that was really a remarkable thing. But Jesus wants to, to use this for him to see that only God is good. And, and what it does is it forces the man to consider the fact that either Jesus is God, so if he calls him good, that's, that's appropriate because Jesus is God, or that the man has a very faulty view of human goodness. That the man, while he uses that word, you know, it's sort of like Princess Bride. Or it's like, I don't think that means what you think that means, right? You know, it's sort of that kind of, of idea. Well, in this man's case, both the things are true. Jesus is God, so he is good. But also the man, is, uh, Jesus will show him that his perception of his own goodness is actually very distorted. And, and I wonder for us this morning, just even as we think about our view of God, you know, and, and everyone believes in God, whether they acknowledge it or not. You know, some people might see themselves as gods. Uh, you know, it may be a God of your own imagination. It may be a God of your own fashioning. But everyone believes in God in one sense. But is, is it the God of the Bible? Is it the God that we see that is revealed in Scripture? And uh, the only God that there is, the creator, the sustainer of all that there is, the God who is actually standing before this young man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he begins, with God. Now, we live in a culture where people think that they're basically good. 
And, and I, I'm really struck, honestly, uh, more recently at funerals, whenever I go, it seems like everybody makes it to heaven in a funeral service. You know, that uh, as, as you look at the deceased and their loved ones, everyone just assumes that their family goes to heaven. Yeah, and, and I think the, part of the reason for that, I mean, it may be a person who never darkened the door of a church. They really showed absolutely no love for God. As a matter of fact, maybe the only time they used God's name was in vain and to smear his name. And yet people just assumed that they go to heaven. And I think part of the reason for that is that we basically think that people are good. And that, you know, while they may not be perfect, they're not as bad as they could be. But, uh, you know, I think that's good for us to ask ourselves today, you know, do you see yourself as basically good? I mean, I know none of us, like I said, would see ourselves as perfect. You know, we all need uh, a guidance and encouragement and stuff. But, you know, uh, do we see ourselves as basically good? You know, maybe one way to put it is, is that you know, we wouldn't equate ourselves with someone like Hitler, but, you know, if we saw ourselves for as we should, maybe we should. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the reality is, is if we don't start by understanding who God is, we'll mistakenly think that we're better than what we really are. And so Jesus knew that, so he began with God, and he points out that only God is truly good, and that our goodness is really a, a facade. It's just sort of a, a thin layer that hides our, our true character. And that brings me to our second point. You know, we must not only acknowledge who God is, that he is good, but we must acknowledge who we truly are. And Jesus wants to help this young man sort of get past that thin veneer of his life where he looks at himself and he says, you know, I'm not that bad, and, and see the true condition of his heart. And so what Jesus does is he, he basically opens the word of God to the law, and he lays that out before the man so that he could see the true condition of his soul. And so Jesus asked him in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know, basically this is the second half of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's all the commandments that have to do with our relationship with each other. And Jesus is saying, you know, well, what about these things? Because God told his people before he took them into the promised land, he said, I will bless you if you keep my commandments. I will curse you if you rebel against me. And so Jesus was laying this out before this man. Well, the man listens to what Jesus says. And in verse 20, he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth, from the time I've been young, from my bar mitzvah, I've kept these things. But Jesus then wants to sort of hone in more clearly to, to have the man consider the fact that obedience to the law or to God's word entails much more than just a mere external conformity to the commandments of God. There's really a heart attitude that, of obedience to the Lord. True goodness is defined by the law which demands a perfect obedience, not only from our external actions, but from our words, from our thoughts, and, and uh, our attitudes. Now, we, uh, and this man, you know, didn't realize that. He just said, yeah, no, I'm good. And, and like this young man, we may have never killed anyone or cheated or stolen someone's property or, or lied to our neighbor or dishonored our parents or, or things like that. But we have all done these things 
more in our hearts, for certain we'd have done those things. We may not have spoken back to our parents because we knew that if we did speak back to our parents, there would be not pleasant things happen, okay? And so we don't do that. But in our minds, we may have rebelled against them greatly. It's sort of like the little boy, you know, that his parents put him in the corner for time out. And they said, you sit there until we tell you to get up. And of course, the little boy is sitting there and he's saying, well, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. It's that kind of attitude, that kind of rebellion that, that oftentimes is, is there in our heart. And one way one person said it, they said, you know, our hands may be clean of sin. In other words, externally, maybe we've not sinned against God in these ways, but our hearts are black with sin where we have rebelled against the Lord. And that's what Jesus wanted this man to see, that he had sinned, that he was not as good as what he thought, that this is what the law of God is designed to do. It's to show, it, it demands such a perfection from us that it exposes our secret sins. And it, it condemns us when we don't meet that standard. And that's what Jesus was doing in the New Testament. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when he when he was sort of going through the Old Testament, and he's saying, well, this is how you view the Old Testament, but this is really the true application of it. Let me give you one example. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, guys, you can appreciate this. So Jesus is saying, you know, we're thinking, okay, if I don't sleep with a woman, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, well, I see some woman walk down the street and she's not dressed as carefully as she probably ought to be. And I'm like lusting after her. I've already committed adultery. I've already sinned against her, you know. And so, you know, what Jesus wants this young man to see is that like everyone else, he is not a law keeper, but a law breaker. But the young man doesn't see it. Because if he had, he would have cried out to Jesus and oh, say, oh, Jesus, oh, I have sinned. What could I do? Please forgive me. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, and he said, I've done all that God has commanded. Uh, I appreciated what one writer said. He said, if that man had truly kept all those commandments, then he would have quickly realized that he could not have kept those commandments. Right? Uh, or C.S. Lewis uh, it's been attributed to him as saying, it was not until I tried to clean up my life that I finally realized how truly sinful I was. Boy, and that is so true for all of us. As we walk with the Lord more and more in our years, we find that our heart has been sinful all along, and we just see more and more the wickedness of our own hearts. A person who thinks they are a believer but are not will get very defensive whenever you question their goodness. You ever thought about that? You want to know where a person is, question their goodness. And you'll find that they'll get very defensive because they're trusting in that goodness. But somebody in whose heart the Holy Spirit has worked, if you question their goodness, they'll probably say something like, well, you know, I hear what you're saying about my sin, but the reality is, you don't know the half of it. I'm way worse than that. You know, they understand the wickedness of their heart. And so, 
You know, if we are to have eternal life, we must acknowledge not only who God is and, and that He is good and perfect, but we are, are gross sinners. And third, we must acknowledge Jesus' rightful place as Lord. Now, Jesus reveals that the man's zeal was very misplaced and his great confidence in his own righteousness at the end of the day was really nothing more than being self-deceived. And, and so we read in verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Well, Jesus makes this absolute command on this man's life because it's one thing to say that you're good, because I think most people will think that. I mean, even as Paul is writing to the church, to the church, to God's people, he says in Romans 12, you people ought not to think more highly of yourselves than you ought. You see, so even as Christians, we can have that temptation to think that we're more okay than what we are. But, but it's one thing to say that you're good, but it's quite another to live a good life. And that's really what Jesus was calling this young man to, was, was to live a good life. Jesus challenges and commands the young man to prove that he's good by placing God first above all things. I mean, that's the first commandment, kids, right? I remember you kids in preschool, you were studying the Ten Commandments last couple semesters ago, I guess now. And the very first commandment is, you must have no other gods before me. God must be first in your life. And the young man... Uh, if you look at his life, as Jesus challenges him, he says, you know, give away all your riches and come follow me. And you see that the young man will not cast aside everything to find eternal life. When push comes to shove, he doesn't want to do what Jesus requires. As a matter of fact, we read in verse 22, when Jesus tells him this, the man is disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus knew all along what, what other people didn't know, and that is that not only was this man wealthy, but it wasn't so much that he was wealthy as much as it is that he had set his love upon his possessions. He loved them. He didn't want to give them up. I mean, I, I think I just want to be careful and clarify that Jesus is not saying that rich people will go to hell and poor people will go to heaven. You know, or the rich people must sell off all their possessions if they want to go to heaven and and poor people just by their status in life will go to heaven. You know, that's, that's not the case. You know, he was really uh, challenging where his love was and whether he would submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows that this man's heart and his specific circumstances. And so he was exposing the idols of his heart, those things that he loved. And this man was not willing to place God above everything. I mean, it really boils down to, this is an illustration of the parable of the pearl of great price. You remember that from the Gospels? How a man goes out and he's in a field and he finds this pearl that's like worth a ton. And so he buries it in the field and he goes and he sells everything. I mean, he liquidates everything. He's on Craigslist, he's on Facebook Marketplace, he's everywhere just trying to unload all this stuff as he has just to try to get enough money so that he can buy this field. And he finally gets enough and he goes to the farmer, he buys the field, and now he rejoices because he's filthy rich because he has this pearl of great price. And what Jesus was saying is, this is really our attitude towards God. 
that it, that is the value that we have of him, that we love him so much that we give him everything. Oh, Lord, please deal with the idols of my heart. Lord, if there's love that I have for anything else, God, squash that love. Give me only a love for you. Matthew chapter 6, we read where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, the, the Lord calls us that he must be first place in our life. But this man traded away all the riches of heaven in order to keep his, his personal wealth. So even though here was a man who approached Jesus uh, that seemingly had all the qualifications of someone who would be a great disciple of Jesus, he was sincere, he was zealous, he was extremely pious, that means he was devoted to God, uh, he did his best to conform his life to the demands of the law. He was wealthy, which in that day was a sign that God was blessing you. You know, he was all those things. If anyone could enter the kingdom because of human achievement, you would think that this man could do it. But Jesus says, no. Sell everything and follow me. So we must acknowledge who God is as good, who we are as, as sinners, but we must also give up all to follow Jesus as our new master. And then fourth, we must acknowledge our inability. You know, if, if we are to come have eternal life, we must acknowledge our inability to do anything to gain that eternal life. Look in verses 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, in, in Jesus' day, the Jews mistakenly thought that if you were wealthy, that meant God was smiling upon you. And so they would see that wealthy people would... would um, naturally be recipients of God's blessing. But Jesus was, was um, countering that idea. He was, he was uh, challenging that idea um, and what shocked them because according to Jesus, wealth could actually be a hindrance to entering the kingdom of God because wealth can cause someone to become self-reliant, someone to be um, uh, focused upon themselves. Because when we have wealth, whenever we have riches, we can do what we want to do, right? We can sort of carry out our own will and map out our life the way that we want, as long as we have the financial resources to do that, which is very contrary to this whole idea of coming to God in humility. Now, let me say this. One, there are wealthy people who are very humble. So just because you have wealth does not mean you do not have humility. But I'm just saying that wealth oftentimes turns into a love of money. And as Paul writes to Timothy, that turns out to be the root of all evil because there is a sense of, of, of independence. The other thing that I think we need to understand is every one of us in this room are wealthy. By the world standards, we are wealthy. I know we have college students in here. You may not feel very wealthy, but by world standards, we are all wealthy and stuff. So... You know, this is, could be a temptation for all of us. And, and Jesus wants us to see here that being rich doesn't qualify one for entrance into the kingdom of God, nor does being poor 
disqualify us from the entrance, but being sinners is what disqualifies all of us from that entrance. And so Mark tells us in verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, Then who could be saved? And you know what Jesus says? Finally, you get it. Finally, you get it. Nobody, nobody, no man, no woman, no child, no young person can do anything to earn their way to heaven. And Jesus, you know, sort of drives them to that point by holding open the word of God. Uh, he shows us that zeal and sincerity, that all the characteristics that you see in this young man are, are not enough to get us to heaven, that riches mean nothing. It, you know, it might buy you a preference on this world, but it won't be before the throne of God. And so Jesus says, you have no power to really save yourself. And as a matter of fact, Jesus goes on in verse 27 to answer their question, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, he says, with man it's impossible, but with God, for, uh, excuse me, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In other words, God can save us when we can't save ourselves. If men and women are sinful and can't earn entrance into the kingdom of God, all they have to do is acknowledge, I can't do this. I can't save myself. You know, if they try to gain entrance into the kingdom through their good works, through their riches, their status, their piety, God says no. But if people throw up their hands and they say, Lord, there is nothing I can do. I, I, all I can do is trust upon your sacrifice that you have given to us. You know, and believe in that, then they have eternal life. You see, Jesus was really turning sort of all forms of religion on its head at this point in time. He's basically saying, unless the kingdom is received as a free gift, then people can't enter it. But if rich people, poor people, people of great standing, people of low standing, submit, simply admit that they cannot be saved, then God grants them that mercy. Now here's Jesus preaching this weighty thing, bringing this to bear upon this young man and talking to his disciples, and then Peter opens his mouth. I can so relate to Peter. It's sort of like I oftentimes open my mouth and then I think later. And that's sort of what Peter does in verse 28. And he said, see, we have left everything and followed you. In other words, uh, we did what the rich man didn't do, Jesus. I just want you to notice that, you know, that we did this. And uh, Jesus just gently tells Peter that he's missing the point. And that despite what's yet to come, God will reward those who renounce their own righteousness to follow Jesus. And we see that in verses 29 through, through 30, where Jesus talks about, he said, you know, there's no one who has left house or brothers and so on and so forth, you know, uh, who will not eventually receive eternal life. And then he says in verse 26, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. You see, despite all the appearances to the contrary, Jesus will make good on his promise. He, he has reversed the order of things and said, you know, those people that appear to be first in life and that be to be blessed and to have all these things will actually end up being last. But those people who have come to me in humility and faith and trusted in me, who have put me first in, in, in their life, they will be first. So being authentic or real doesn't endear us more to God. It is our faith and our trust in Him 
not just in word only, but actually in action. And so we must come to him humbly, broken, repentant, mournful over our sin. But if we do, he promises us eternal life with him. You know, sometimes we think that salvation is about doing something that we can't do ourselves. And Jesus tells this man that salvation is not about doing, it's about trusting. It's about believing. It's about having faith. Now the man, like I think so many people today, sort of contemplate that and they sort of twist it in their mind and they think, oh, well, that's easier than what I thought. You know, all I have to do is trust in this idea. You know, I just have to trust in this Jesus and, and that's easy. I could do that. So let me just do that and then I'll just live my life the way I want. And the problem is, is that the man's soul and any man's soul, any woman's soul is intertwined with their idols. And, and Jesus says, you must lay aside those idols. You must submit to me. It's not enough just to have, I mean, it is enough to have faith in Jesus. But in that, as he gives us his salvation, he changes our hearts to not love the things that we so often love in this world, but we love him. And what that man needed to hear and what we need to hear is that salvation is not so much about being saved from hell or even being saved to go to heaven for that matter. It is being saved from our sin and from our idols and from the things that control us and rule over our lives as only God should. It is about being saved from a fantasy world in which we think that life is all about me and sex and food and pleasure and work and family. It's all about having that fantasy sort of blown away and uh, being saved into the real world where life is all about God, knowing God and being known by God and loving God and laying down our lives for Him and others, spending our time and our talents and our treasures that have been given to us by God just in sitting at His feet to be used of Him as if He were the King that He really is, saying, Lord, You are my all. Let me bless You. That's what eternal life is. Kids, you're growing up in the church. And that's a great place to be. But it can be easy to acknowledge who Jesus is as you hear the stories in Sunday school. As you hear your parents teach you about Jesus Christ. It can be easy to realize that you're a sinner. Or at least that you're not perfect and you, you need help, help. But it may not always be understood by you what the demands of Jesus are or your inability to keep these things, and to realize the true desperateness of your heart, that you need Jesus, that there's nothing that you can do yourself to earn his favor. Even though you've grown up in the church, and you don't do maybe other things that other kids do that you know you're not supposed to do, none of that earns you any favor with God. It is only by his grace. And we can be like the rich young ruler who thinks that he's better than he is because he's followed the rules. Besides, I think our culture sort of uh, programs us uh, to compartmentalize our lives so we don't recognize oftentimes the hypocrisy in our own heart. That we act one way uh, at home or at school and maybe another way at, at school, uh, at, uh, with friends or at church or, or things like that. And the idea of total inability uh, escapes us. It's hard for us to accept that there's absolutely nothing good and acceptable to God in the way that we live apart from Him. 
And, and you might even say, I know I'm a sinner, but, but, you know, we still sort of act like if we do something good, that people should recognize that. Kids, do you ever find yourself going up to your parents and saying, hey, I cleaned my room, or hey, I took out the trash, or I picked up the Legos, right? What are you sort of wanting your parents to say? Great job. That's so awesome. And there's nothing wrong with your parents giving you kudos for that. But none of that, none of that makes you better or more acceptable to God. Jesus says you are only acceptable because of what I have done. Jesus, Jesus says you are no more acceptable to me in your good works than someone who murdered their baby daughter. Now I know that's a graphic way to put it, but we need to understand the depth of our sin. And to understand that that's why we come to Jesus, to humbly call upon Him and His grace. We are sinners under the demand of a holy God that requires us to put Him first and foremost in our lives. Our hearts are, are so self-consumed that we're always the center of our universe. So it's only as we recognize our inability to do anything to be acceptable to God's sight and to trust in Christ alone that we can be saved. Now, I know that's a very counter-cultural message. The world is out there telling you, hey, you're great. You want everybody to be giving you kudos. Everybody needs to be liking your Facebook post or even better, put, a, put a, a, a heart on it, which means they like it even more so you feel those kudos and the warm fuzzies. But you know, it says that Jesus loved this young man enough that he spoke the truth. And, and he's calling us today to do the same, to, to recognize that this is what it means to humbly come to Jesus, that only such a person can enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. So my question for you is this, what about you? Does such humility characterize your life? Or, or is there something that you're hanging on to that you consider more important than God? And you may be here this morning and you may be a Christian, and, and there may be no doubt that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. But you may be hanging on to an idol. You may have put things first before God. It might be your work. It might be your pleasure. It might be a hobby that you have. It might even be your family, which is a good thing. And you need to love your family. But Jesus is to be our first love. And maybe... You're here this morning and, and you're sort of like the church in the book of Revelation where John says, you've, lo you've lost your first love. Your, your heart has grown cold. And, and God may want you to come to him and just ask for forgiveness for that. Now, my friends, what, what are you going to do today? Where are you? Is, your, is the song of your heart like that great hymn? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or will you do precisely what the rich man, the rich young man did, where he just walked away, going without eternal life? Oh, I pray that the, that the Lord would so work in our hearts that we would be before him as people that understand who God is and his goodness. We would understand the sinfulness of our own heart and, and knowing that Jesus must be Lord of our lives. And that there is nothing that we can do. And so we come just laying ourselves at, at his mercy. It, it really is Mark chapter 8 that we've looked at before in summary. Look back. Mark chapter 8 verse 34. 
If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Let's pray this morning. Just just take a, a few moments of, of silence and uh, maybe there's something that was said that you just want to spend some time in prayer with the Lord. Just take this time now to do that and then I'll close this in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for the words that you have given us today. Lord, I just want to thank you for the hearts of those in, in whom your Holy Spirit has worked and for the grace that you have given to us. And Lord, as we reflect upon these things, we're just reminded that as your children, as those who are adopted as your sons and, and your daughters, that God, we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to feel better about ourselves. Uh, than people who don't come to church on Sunday mornings. Because, God, we know that everything that we have has come from you. And so we come this morning, Lord, just instead with compassion for others. Lord, we come with praise to you. Lord, why would you be so gracious as to give us eternal life? But we thank you for that. And, Father, I just pray for those that maybe are listening on the live stream or here today who... Who don't know you maybe they've even deceived themselves like this young man and they think that they're okay lord i pray that if that is the case and they are not that you would convict them with your holy spirit open their eyes lord to see let them not be like this young man who walks away into eternity into the fires of hell but lord may they enjoy what it means to know you to love you to be loved by you Oh, God, we pray in your name. Amen.